I am Lucas Mack, and I'm on a mission to see the hurting get healed and the healed go out and heal others in order for all of us to experience the true love and light we desire. This podcast is me sharing my journey with you so you don't feel alone in your journey. Welcome to the Golden Rule Revolution. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome back to another episode of the Golden Rule Revolution. I am Lucas Mack, and thank you for joining me on this journey. I have to say, over the past year, I've been going through really hard times. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you can tell, because I've just, as much as I've tried to keep my vibe high, to stay in the love of God, to walk in truth, to be in that place of divine presence my wife's sickness and the chaos that has came come from that has been incredibly hard. And thankfully a few weeks ago, I went to a retreat where I, I experienced just incredible healing and beauty and goodness and met other people that love God and love truth in, and are not defined by categories or religion or, um, boxes. Um, and I feel like I'm coming out of a very, very long, dark period. And so as the podcasts have been less frequent and as, um, this journey has been, um, filled with ups and downs, I just want to say thank you for everyone who stuck with me and sent me so many positive vibes and prayers and thoughts and and kind wishes, because it really means a lot really does. I receive it all. I receive your love. And because of the love that we are co-creating together in this world, I do believe that where we're going, even though it seems like chaos and it seems like confusion, it seems very dark and hard and inflation and politics and wars and all these things. I do believe we're going to enter the most incredible mind-blowing time that we could ever imagine in God's love and, and the arms that he is bringing everyone back into his presence. So I believe that 100%. I've seen it since I was a little boy, these visions that I've had, and I know it's coming. So I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you for staying with me on this journey as we're walking into that. So today I'm so excited. This is a cool um, encounter. So Kim Bussing, who is, is a published author by a uh, publishing house. Um, she is an incredible copywriter. She's been a professor of, of English. She is, she, she's incredible. And I met her when she was very young and she interned for my branding and creative agency years ago. I think, well, we get into how long ago, but to see her grow up and then we got reconnected through uh, another company and saw her name pop up. It's, it's just amazing how we meet people in our lives. You never know the impact that we're going to have on them and you never know the impact they're going to have on us. And this is a cool reunion that Kim and I get to share. We talk about health. We talk about awakening. We talk about business. We talk about the world. And I'm really excited to bring my friend and dear sister, Kim Bussing to you. Well, everyone, like I said, there it's very rare to have these beautiful intersections in life with the same beautiful soul over and over throughout um, this journey that we're on. And Kim, 
I am so thankful you're on the podcast. Thank you for coming on. And what a wild way that we keep getting connected throughout the years. I know. Thank you for having me. And I realized, I think it's been almost 10 years since we first met. Yeah. It's amazing. And I didn't have this baby and everyone, I got, (laughs) I got baby in the lap while I'm doing this podcast right now. So we'll see how it goes. But I know 10 years of beautiful intersection of work and life. And I mean, I even gave a keynote and met your mom one time. I mean, that was random, right? I mean, just yeah, wow. it's been it's been all over. I was reflecting. I think that the career I have now is probably fully because of you. Hmm. So I'm I'm just really thankful that our paths do keep crossing in this way. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. So um, you know, I shared a little bit in the intro of how we met and what you were doing, but share your your journey of how even you and I did first connect, and then what you've been doing since then. Yeah, definitely. So 10 years ago, I was in college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to be an econ major and go to Wall Street and make a ton of money doing finance stuff. And then I took one creative writing course and changed my entire life plan. And I just randomly applied to work uh, at your company, Fourth Avenue Media, as a intern of something. And then afterwards, I started working as a, a copywriter for you on a freelance basis. And then it just it's kind of spiraled and our paths have merged once again. Um, it's so cool. And truly, Kim, cool. I, you, you, I've shared this with you before, um, yeah. but I'm going to let everyone know out of all the writers I've ever hired and worked with, you are hands down the best um, writer. And now look what you're doing. You're a published author. You have another book. Deal. I can't wait to hear all the things you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So I just got a, a three book deal with Penguin Random House to write fairy tale retellings for middle grade audiences. So your uh, your kids, you can buy them for your kids pretty awesome. soon, spring twenty twenty five. Amazing. Yeah, and I started running my own kind of creative consulting agency. Um, I've been doing a lot of creative direction and obviously copywriting, and then just kind of moving into my own thing because storytelling for me is so important. And I just realized that I wanted a lot more control over how I was helping people tell stories mm. and whether that's working with authors or with brands. And so then I just yeah. having my own thing really allowed me to to have that control. What, what drew you initially to the creative side and, and writing and, and what excites you about it to this day? A complete accident. I think mm. <laughs> I have been writing ever since, like before I could actually hold a pen, I was telling stories and so it was just such a natural part of who I was. I didn't understand it was a career, but it was just something that I was good at and naturally gravitated to. So I kind of resisted it for a long time because mm. I thought you can't actually make a career out of writing and storytelling. No one cares. You know, publishing a book is so hard. How was I going to do it? But then I just kept on running into uh, internships and jobs and it was what I liked doing. And then getting to work with creative people, I realized that was what fueled me was mm. getting to, you know, be involved in the creative process, tell stories, you know, work with designers and strategists and think, how can we help change people's minds through what we're doing? And how can we like try and make the world a better place through these weird skill sets that we have sitting around at our computers and making wow. stuff up all day? Totally. Um, yeah. it is such a, the creative space is really I find to be the fullness of the human expression. Yeah. And what's so beautiful. I, I joke around my buddy, uh, one of my best friends since I was seven years old, he's a Lieutenant Colonel in the air force, um, yeah. about to get a full Colonel commission. Um, 
but he has a he has two masters in electrical engineering and he's incredibly smart engineer. Yeah. And I remember going to, he went to Seattle Pacific university and I was going to the UW and I remember writing on the board of his engineering class. Like you think this is hard, try communication as a joke. Um, <laughs> but truly like without the ability to express articulately and passionately in a way that people understand doesn't matter how much of the left brain gets developed. It's the right brain that's needed to engage people with that message or with that product or with that idea. Yeah, definitely. I think with engineers and tech brands, one of the biggest problems they face is that inability to communicate what they're doing. Mm. They can be the smartest people in the world, have the best, most innovative product in the world. But if they can't express that, it's not going to reach audiences because audiences don't care if you have a cool piece of tech. They care about what it means to them. And I think bridging that gap is really where communication and storytelling comes into play. And that's what makes it so fun because you're thinking not just of you know, business and products, but you're thinking, okay, how can I make someone's life actually better? Yeah. And how can I, you know, solve this problem? And I'm not an engineer. I come from a family of engineers. I don't know what they do and I've never figured it out, but it's nice to know that there's a way I can take what I am good at yes. and still help solve those problems. I love it. Um, we were talking about AI when yeah. we connected most recently in, and the challenge or opportunity that we all face of how to be more human. Yeah. In the age of AI. And how have you seen, like, what is your view of AI and everything that's going on right now? Yeah, it's really interesting because I've actually been talking to a lot of AI companies that want writers, which really surprised me because I thought my job was going to be obsolete. I went through a period where I was like, everything I know doesn't matter. And it was very confusing because it felt like my, what I was doing was very human. So I didn't, you know, understand how that could be lost. And apparently it's, it's not lost yet. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities, like we could use it in a productive way to automate the things that we shouldn't have to spend our time doing. Yeah. Like if it's filling out data sheets, I think that's great because it does give us more time back in a period where people are so overworked and so burnt out that they're miserable at their yeah. jobs instead of yes. being able to find, you know, career paths that are a lot more fulfilling. They can tap into things that matter more. But I think that we have to understand as a culture that this is a tool and you can't replace what matters most. You know, people talk about having a robot write an email for you. I mean, maybe if it's a generic customer email that's inquiring about like what products you have available, yeah, that's fine. But with the way we interact, we need to actually speak to each other and figure out where we're coming from. And one thing I've been noticing a lot is people are trying to automate novel writing and there's like a whole... Wow. Like flux of AI written novels on Amazon. They're terrible. They're not even making an effort to pretend right. to be human. And it's drowning out sales and opportunities for self-published authors mainly because they just don't have the budgets of a someone published by a, a major publishing house. And it's just, it's so strange to me because stories tell us so much about who we are. And if we're trying to stop ourselves from telling stories, we're not letting ourselves dream. We're yeah. forgetting how to imagine we're forgetting what it means to reflect on our experiences and right. figure out how to communicate that to someone else. Stories help us feel less lonely. Yes. And they're also really good for our brains. So yes. that can't be something you give to a robot. It, I've been talking, actually, when I first started Fourth Avenue Media, I was talking about our tagline is the only thing that sets you apart is your story. Yeah. And what I saw companies struggle with, they're really good at talking about who, what, when, where, or 
I would actually say they're really good at talking about what in the particular, and yeah. then a little bit better with who, who they could talk about who they are a little bit. Maybe they didn't yeah. know their culture. They didn't know they didn't have their, their internal values nailed down, but they knew who they were for most part and what they do. They struggle with a purpose, they struggle with why. Yeah. And especially when the founder leaves and there's that second generation or third generation leadership in there, they struggle. And who, what, when, where, why are the, those are the questions of a story, right? And so yeah. what is the question you're talking about? How does it benefit people? How does it benefit humanity? And yeah, the particulars, I think we, I don't know if I ever talked to you about this, but yes. Um, <laughs> Raphael painted the, there's a painting, famous painting called the school of the masters where all the Greek philosophers are, are talking in the, um, the Acropolis and Plato and Aristotle are talking to each other. And Plato is pointing up in the air and Aristotle has his left hand out like this. And the yeah. great debate was whether there is universal truth or just particular truths. And Plato believed only in universal truths and Aristotle believed only in particular truths. So actually the Renaissance went down Aristotle's pathway of just particular truths. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and play in the reformation, same happening, same time in Europe took Plato's path of universal truth. Yeah. I this matters is. Yeah. Stories get, when we, when we are reduced to just particulars, it reduces purpose vision. It reduces that human desire for connection and it makes everything really meaningless so for instance like story is no longer has purpose and a universal understanding of it story is just a thing that anyone can do or ai can do and it so it devalues without universal truth or a universal concept a worldview we can really get lost in the weeds yeah and i love what you were talking about with businesses and stories too yes because i think a lot of the times and this is something i realize with clients is that they think that story is just some words that they yeah. put on their website or they put on their pitch decks, but it's not. I mean, it it, it's, it kind of girds everything, right? And yeah, it's, it's all their essence. Their, yeah. yeah. And it's part of their internal culture. Yeah. And that's what, like, I've seen a lot more clients come and be like, how do I translate this into my culture? Like, I have these values. How do I enact that with my employees? Because that's how you get people to stay. That's how you have a brand that lives out what it's actually trying to do. And that creates longevity because it it's not just a superficial story. It's a full cohesive story across everything. Yeah. And that builds success. I mean, financially, that's better for you. And it's better for the people, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally who are working for you. Yeah, totally. I know it is. Yeah. It benefits the bottom line, top line, yeah. but also is what every person that works in that business to fulfill whatever the value is that they're selling helps yeah. them step more fully into what they're doing, gives them purpose and meaning. And um, there, my wife's cousin was getting married a couple of years ago and actually probably 12 years ago now. So it's been a long time, but um, one of our family members was a Holocaust survivor, family uh, friend was a Holocaust survivor. And he showed me the tattoo numbers on his um, wrists. And he told me something I've never forgotten. He said, when you reduce someone to mere numbers, you've erased their humanity. Wow. He's like, we cease to be oh. memories and hair color and eye color and personality. We are just zero, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. No emotion, no story, nothing, just data. And yeah. that's really what I think for 
for a long time from the 80s till now, this whole generation from Gen X and the boomers still like holding on to this, pushing data and pushing the metrics and looking at Power BI versus like, well, what was the message that, yeah, sorry, but what was the message that inspired the person in the first place that that data point represents? And this is what I talk when I'm consulting at Microsoft or any of these tech companies, like data is important, but it's only a snapshot of someone's proactive engagement to a message. So what inspired them to take action, not yeah. just what action did they take? Yeah. Yeah. It's the action behind the action. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The need behind the need, which is also a fundamental aspect of good storytelling. When you're thinking about how to write character, it's also just a good way to think about how do people behave and how are you behaving and why are you making the choices that you're making so you can understand yourself better and be a better member of society. Hmm. And society, so what do you, what's your view of, I mean, the world is just insane right now, right? It feels like everything's upside down and even... The tech industry is struggling right now. There's a lot of just a lot of opinions, a lot of chaos, a lot of confusion, um, climate and weather and food and politics and media and, and institutions. Like, it seems like no matter what way you look at it, everything's crazy. Yeah. I think that people are just trying too hard to move faster and find solutions. I think we're all like, there's just, I feel like there's a need and there's a lack and a fear that's pervading a lot of our society. And instead of trying to simplify, we try and do more like, how do we automate these tasks? Mm. And how do we get cars that drive themselves? Instead of like, how do we replenish soil health in communities so that we can grow healthier food? And so I think, there's just a pushback to looking at what is simpler because simple can be harder. Yes. And yes. yeah. So that's, I mean, that's something I try and do in my own life is, you know, look at like, how can I live a better, more productive in like a healthier way life, mm-hmm. like growing my own food or buying only from farmers. I have a lot of opinions about food. Good. Sure. <laughs> I, I mean, um, I was, uh, I don't know, two nights ago, I was watching this video that every time it's been proposed to label GMO food as GMO, um, it has failed in the United States. And so they passed the, that you can have the organic label, but they won't pass the GMO label. And I thought, yeah. what a bizarre thing that we're saying that all the GMO foods are actually not real food and the organic is real food. And so could you imagine what would happen to our food, our understanding of food, the old adage, we are what we eat. So people are eating genetically modified substances that are actually yeah. modifying their whole mind, body, soul, spirit, and heart. It's not just their physical being. Yeah. Could you imagine if it said fake, you walk into a grocery store, 95% of everything, it says fake food. And then you have yeah. to go look for the real food. It's so crazy. That's why farmers markets and farms. Yeah. We have, we get to support them. Not have to, I mean, but we should, yeah, we should, <laughs> we should be supporting them. Yeah. And you know, there's so many arguments. It's just such a messy crowded space. And even the wellness space, I think is pretty much filled with a lot of snake oil at this point. Yes. yes. Uh, I definitely have a lot of like very radical, like grow your own food, eat red meat kind of views, yeah. but Um, I think like a really big thing is our gut biodiversity. And when we're talking about like rising rates of depression and anxiety, 
we should also be talking about what we're eating yes. because it's all aspects of how we nourish ourselves that impact how we're thinking, the chemicals that are firing in our gut and our brain. And so I think, you know, when we're talking about trying to like fight epidemics of loneliness and create healthier societies, like it's just, it is such a big fight that we're up against. And then, you know, when you go to Europe, you can eat whatever you want and there's no impact. Right. And they have different ingredients in their food. Yeah. And it's made fresh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bread is flour and salt and water, you know? Right. right. Yeah. But even it's the not- craft like foods that will sell in Europe are banned in the, or yeah. vice versa. No. Yeah. yeah. Those, what they sell in the United States are banned in Europe, even though the labels or the packaging looks the same, but the ingredients are different. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's so backwards, like what's going on with the food. It's so backwards. And I think it's just, we have too much noise and especially with social media, there's just too many people trying to put a stake in the ground, trying to sell something that we aren't connecting authentically anymore. Like we're not having conversations about how to live better lives. We're having conversations about how to sell more stuff or how to look like you're having a better life than somebody else. Right. And that's that's why the wellness industry is booming because you can sell these outrageously priced things that do nothing, but it's that halo effect of, Hey, I buy this product. So I'm goopier than you are. <laughs> it, there's a whole, the whole um, sovereignty movement. I don't know if you've heard of the comedian. I'm not necessarily a fan of him, but um, Benjamin Owen. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a Hollywood comedian. Um, he started this whole thing called Bar- Bertaria or something like that, but it's a whole like underground movement of people growing their own food, creating their own farmer's markets in areas that they live in. If there isn't one, supporting each other, growing your own chickens and having your own eggs and farms and, and home and basically this whole movement of homesteading, um, which I love. And and I'm actually in talks with some people about doing something very similar because we have to, first of all, if the power goes out or if the supply chain, God forbid, goes down or like we're so far removed from what it means to be a human, to be taking care of ourselves. I don't want to have to rely on the supply chain for taking care of myself or my family. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that we're really seeing a lot more right now with the rise of AI is having things do more things for us. Mm. So we're further removed from being able to take care of ourselves. And I've spoken to some people in AI and they think there's going to be a huge backlash against all this content generation because people want people who can think for themselves. They want people who have innovative ideas and creative ideas. And if you're relying on a robot, that part of your brain is going to weaken. And it's the same thing with, I mean, I, my boyfriend and I are trying to start a garden and we're like, we actually, we don't know where to start Mm. because we just haven't had to do this for so many years that it's a whole research process. And it's like, oh, we could just go buy it somewhere. So it's like, we have to relearn how to actually tend to our own garden and grow our own food. But it's a really weird time. Have you heard of, um, I don't know what it's called, but putting copper wire in the plants. Have you seen any of this stuff? Like uh, I'll send you a picture after this podcast, but um, there's a guy I follow showed three pictures, three plants, same room. One got just water and um, sunlight. One got water, sunlight, and fertilizer. And the fertilized plant was a little bit bigger. And then Mm -hmm. one has a copper wire a couple inches dug into the ground and it's coiled. And it is 
five times bigger than the fertilized. And it's showing like the technology that they used to do ionizing the air. So like the soil has to be obviously replenished, but also bringing in like energy to the plant through the copper wires are making them explode in growth. Yeah. Um, so wow. I will say there's so much there. And I would say they, because there are the they's that been, if they gave us, for instance, the same people that make the sickness also make the cure. And yeah. it's the same thing with food. They don't want to show us how to have abundant, live in abundance and free food because they don't make any money. And for instance, the, now that I've lived in Texas and I'm around so many people in the oil industry, um, a buddy of mine said, there's no such thing as fossil fuels that there is no, he said, think about how many fossils would have to exist. Like how much decay and how he's like, it's so ridiculous. What they did that for is because they want to create scarcity. And if they can create scarcity, then they can control the price. He said, but oil is like blood of the earth. It replenishes every three months. And so that's why these companies can drill forever. And there's not a scarcity. So it's marketing. Everything is yeah. marketing. You know, when you look at it from that point of view, it is. Everything marketing. is marketing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so just learning how to use marketing for good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how did you tell me about, I mean, share, share those powerful views. how did you get into the food and, and gardening and sustainability yeah. Yeah. So my mom um, was just always really into it. Growing up, we were always a very organic household. We were drinking kombucha before it was cool. We were drinking kombucha from the store when it was still like it had an alcohol content, but no uh, one knew about it. So they didn't like market. So I would just be this eight year old with my like regular good fermented kombucha. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, getting all my gut health in. And so, I mean, you know, there was cod liver oil. There's all this stuff at home. One of my aunts has chronic fatigue. So she got really into like really health oriented stuff and she would pass on these messages to us. So, you know, getting off gluten when I realized I was having a lot of weird health issues and that kind of solved everything and learning how to soak beans to get the nutrients out of them and, you know, the importance of eating organ meats. Yeah. So yeah. I definitely pushed back in college. I was like, I am going to eat as many cliff bars and donuts as I can because I'm so <laughs> sick of this. Yeah. And then- I got into my later twenties and I was like, Oh, <laughs> I need, you know, you, you do need to take care of yourself. And also just because these sustainability conversations and climate change conversations are so prevalent and you see those very clear ties to the food system. Um, I've just been really trying to, you know, make sure that I'm living those values and also finding new ways to help share these views because I mean, people are going to hate this, but there's all this stuff. Yeah, on not, not my, not my audience. They'll love it. You can go, we can say whatever you want. Okay, perfect. Because, you know, there's all these conversations about cows right now and everyone's like, cows are causing climate change, but it's how we're That's raising certainly. the cows. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I mean, truly. Everyone knows this and who listen to me. Stop believing yeah. pretty much everything that's being said. Everything. Yeah. How, yeah. how much, first of all, plants eat carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide it's like yeah there we're actually feeding plants the more carbon in the air we're not killing it, it's so silly it's yeah everything. and these, yeah and like i i was doing some research because i had some family members get into beyond burgers and i knew it was going to be an argument on family vacation so i had to arm myself with some research and 
you know, the, we talk about sustainability conversations in terms of carbon emissions, mm-hmm. especially in terms of animals, because then, you know, the non-meat products can use that as an argument for what they're selling. But a lot of it is also soil health and biodiversity. And when you're growing things that are monocrops, that's super, super bad for soil health. Yep. And it's much harder to get soil health back. Whereas a cow that's being fed yes. grass and yes. it's pooping a lot, that's great. That's right. I mean, yeah. in I was just talking to friends about this. The reason we're, we have the term, holy shit. Yeah comes from the term holy cow comes from the term of Baal worship or the cow like when they built the they when the the Israelites leave Egypt or the Hebrews leave Egypt yeah they make a golden calf it's because the cow the age of Taurus that's why Indians don't eat cow to this day it's sacred because the cow produces psilocybin mushrooms from their poop like the cow is much more Mm -hmm. like it's the milk is life the meat there's so much more to it like yeah. Well, we don't have a holistic, what I'm saying is like, when we don't have a holistic understanding and, and for instance, like those monocrops, just to till those and harvest those, they're killing every species of animal that snakes, rabbits, like chipmunk squirrels, they're wiping mice out. They're killing much more to harvest yeah. these plants than it is to, you know, harvest sustainable animals. Um, yeah. And we're just, we're not telling these stories because you know, there are voices that are much louder. Yes. So yes. yeah, I think it's just, it, people get triggered and then you're like, Whoa, yeah, take it easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I, I think it also becomes so much a part of our own view of ourselves mm-hmm. and our values and not eating meat becomes, you know, something that like you show that you're valuing animal life and you show yeah. that you're valuing the environment. Right. And that's great. And like, I love, like, I love animals. I think those are great values. But it's just very frustrating that those views get twisted by people who can, you know, yell about them the loudest and be like, yes. yeah, you're so much better here Buy this like $15 lab made burger. Right. Right. Made out of whatever. And it's like, this is, this is not right. And we're not letting people like live their authentic lives because yes. we're not telling them the whole picture. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And my view of, of the world and humanity is if the lights go out, the power goes down what does being a human actually look like like mm-hmm. we are we are made to be part of this ecosystem and yeah. beyond meat's not a natural part of the ecosystem or any of these manufactured foods or gmos what's natural is what grow yeah grows naturally but also i was thinking because i was talking to someone about this the other day concept of slavery globally, but in the United States, we hear so much about the slaves. I'm like, what type of food industry supported the amount of slaves working manual labor every day? I'm like, I've never heard anything about were there farms just to support the slave industry? And I know this is a bizarre thing, but I'm like, what type of food were they growing? And was it more nutrient back then? Could they grow less essentially, but one one could have the, the nutrition of five or 10, you know, whatever it is, apple, broccoli, corn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that when you look at the nutritional value of what's sold in stores versus what's grown on a farm, it's so drastically different. And also the way you feel also the flavor. Like, I don't think when you have these hyper pesticide crops, you're going to get that same 
value, which is so sad because then I also feel people try and make these good choices and what's being sold in the produce section is not right. cutting it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, we are, it, I've, I think we talked about this last time, but there's this whole concept of the great awakening and, and there's like woke and then there's awake and there's, it's unfortunately always split between like, there's no accident in the movie, the matrix that Morpheus offers a blue pill or a red pill and our political parties are based in blue and red. And there's this concept of blue and red lights when flashing hijack our brain and causes to fight or flight, which police officers use. And there's this constant dividing people in the blue pill, which is like, everything's good. And there, I believe that they have their best interest in mind, my best interest in mind, or this yeah. red pill verse, which is, I think summarized in sovereignty and awaking up from the system and not believing like really there's a movie. I forget what it's called, but it, there's memes on it. They thought for themselves or I forget what it's called, but he has glasses on when he has his glasses on, he can see what all the billboards in Manhattan say. And it says like, obey, submit, trust. And he takes his glasses off and he can yeah. see the ads like, you know, escape away or, and he could see the truth when he had these glasses on. Yeah. I think there's more and more of this awakening happening where I hope we're so. less believing these big manufactured, a lot of money put in campaigns to get us to buy yeah. the lie that consuming all this food and media and Hollywood. I mean, it doesn't matter like verbally, audibly, yeah. you know, auditorily, visually. We're consuming so much stuff that is not healthy for our human soul. It's not. And I've been reading a lot of stuff too about how the age of consumerism has created a really unhealthy relationship with money for a lot of people because you're constantly mm. being told to buy stuff. So you think it's very normalized to spend yeah. a ton of money on a ton of clothing that appears on your Instagram feed. And then people are struggling with this really unhealthy financial relationship. And it just, it feels like across the board, we're not nurturing these different parts of ourselves. Mm. And I mean, it, it's hard because there's bigger forces at work that are encouraging people to make these choices. But I think a lot of it, we need to learn how to come back to ourselves to know what actually matters. Yeah. Like what matters about what you buy? Maybe for someone buying a bunch of clothes is really important because they're, you know, they have a very people facing job mm -hmm. and, you know, they need to present themselves in a certain way and it brings them a lot of joy, but being able to identify that they're purchasing something out of joy versus you know, a, an unnamed need, I think is the big thing. Right. And I, I think it's just, it's with everything. It's how we work, how we shop, how we play, how we interact. It's just not authentic and human anymore. Hmm. In my dream world, we all spend less time online. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Same. Same. Yeah. Online has I was listening to Joe Rogan, I don't know, 10 years ago, whenever, like early on in his podcast, and he was talking, he had the author on who wrote this uh, book, I think it's called One Second After. And it's actually what framed up my, my thinking of if the supply chain goes down and if the grid goes down, what happens? Mm -hmm. And the guy that writes the book, I uh, wrote the book One Second After, talks about it, if an EMP was detonated over the United States and all electricity went out, what happens in its 
it's really terrifying. He goes in what happens one second after one hour after one week after one month after and by one month after it was something like 80% of people living in this country would be dead because they don't have food. They don't, it would get chaotic. It would become, it would become insane. It really would. You wouldn't be able to trust like your neighbor anymore because if they have food or you have food or it just becomes. Yeah. And my point being is he was also talking about books and he said the push for digital consumption of books, he said, you could see very easily if a nefarious person did take the energy out and took all the online digital stuff out, how many people have physical copies of books and speaking to you as an author, like there's something I'm going to say old world, but very human to get offline and be back in very tangible, physical, tactile ways of communication and being. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, support your local libraries. It's great for your community. It's great for the authors. Libraries are amazing. I love the library. Um, And I'm so guilty. I use my iPad to read all the time because I was traveling a lot and it was just so much easier because I read fast. Yeah. And then I realized I was really reliant on it to get books. And when I died, I'd be like, well, I have nothing to read now. And it's like, I have books in my home. And I realized, so I wasn't reading well. Like there was just, it's so much easier to skim. I wasn't, you know, processing and critically thinking enough about what I was reading. And so now I am trying to make the shift back again to physical books, because I just think it activates a part of your brain to have that tactile experience yes. Yes. because then you're engaging with almost a living thing. Like yeah. that book has passed through so many hands to get to you. And it's a lot easier to appreciate that when you're actually holding it versus just seeing it on a screen, because then it just feels like another piece of content. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Also, designers put a lot of effort into those pages. So it's nice to have the book as it's supposed to be. Yes. Yes. Speaking of books, like what what would be your dream book to write? Oh, I feel like I am writing my dream books. (laughs) Good. And tell me about it. Yeah. So they're middle grade fairy tale retellings. And I studied fairy tales a lot accidentally again in grad school. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that have been good for me have been happy accidents, probably because my subconscious knew a lot more about what I was supposed to be doing than I thought I did. And so, yeah, they're just retelling fairy tales, making them a lot more feminist, you know, returning to these things Mm. that are very fundamental. I mean, everyone knows the story of Cinderella and Little Red Riding Hood. These stories have been around forever. There are no originals, uh, which is one of the first things we teach in fairy tales is that there's no such thing as an original fairy tale. You versions of Cinderella popping up across the world. And Mm. somehow there are these similarities between the tales it's, it's amazing. You wonder, is it because people were traveling and telling these stories? Is this just some part of our human experience that is so fundamentally expressed in Cinderella? Mm. So it feels really special to get to revisit those and put my own stamp on it um, because I don't think they were feminist enough. And I wish I had seen more feminist princesses and you know heroines when I was younger. I think it would have been great. I was a teenager in the early 2000s, so I dealt with like Britney shaving her head and stuff like that. Um, And just seeing women villainized a lot for just trying to express themselves and live. Um, But then definitely just writing maybe young adult fairy tale retellings as well would be great. That'd be beautiful. That's that's in the future. Yeah. So when you say feminist, meaning like they needed, um, they weren't complete until they had a man and they were just only validated by falling in love. Is that that type of view? Yeah. And like, I think that falling in love is amazing. And I think that romance and books should be celebrated. It's more that they are kind of objects yeah, that yeah. need to be rescued. Yeah. Right. 
So Cinderella has to wait for a prince to like put the glass slipper on her foot. But you know what happens when she has a lot more agency and just reminding people through these stories of what we're capable of, you know, and the importance of facing the things that we fear, because that's really the only way you can move forward is by facing that. I love that. I I cannot wait for my daughters to read those books. I think that's beautiful. Um, My wife and I did this emotional intelligence training years ago and in it, like growing up in Christianity, they teach that two halves make one, like um, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. Well, there's this narrative of other half, your other half or better half, and there's this half, well, two halves make one, but this emotional intelligence training that we went to radically changed my view. And and very empowering in our relationship is that one and one make three when I'm a whole and she's a whole, the third is the relationship and that we can change the relationship, not by focusing and needing in this codependency, but being fully sovereign and working internally of what am I bringing to this relationship? What does she bring in this relationship? And then the relationship is the byproduct of essentially us yeah. changing the inner variables. I love that. I think that's so powerful and something we don't talk about enough. Right. Um, I've actually, I feel like I've gone through that a lot recently because I, I had a really busy start of the year and it was really intense and I was definitely not at my best because I was just trying to figure out, you know, these new dynamics of running my own business, of having books that were being brought into the world. And I was just, you know, I didn't have a strong sense of my own value system. So I wasn't able to handle the changes as well as I wish I would have. And I realized the toll it took on my relationship because I was not being a good partner. I was kind of, you know, treating that, like letting my worst self out for this other person because it was a safe place, but you know, you can't expect another person to heal you. You have to be able to, you know, they can be there to support you, but they can't fill the gaps and the scars. Like, Right. You have to do that yourself to be a, a good partner and in friendships too. And in business relationships, everything. Yeah, that's right. Um, I like the term holding space. Like we, our job is we can't save anyone. We can't fix anyone. And we're, it's our job really not to help anyone. We can support someone, which is different than helping them. Helping is like seeing them as a victim. They're, they're reaching out and I'm putting a hand down, but supporting is saying, I'm going to hold space for you. I'm not going to react when you're triggered. I'm just going to hold space and I'll, and let myself be that safe space for you to dissolve into however you need to dissolve in this moment. But I'm not responsible for fixing anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important in a relationship to recognize that you can't do that and your partner can't do that right because otherwise it's just it's there's weird power dynamics there's weird expectations and then all of you know the trauma that you have buried down it just comes out in weird ways mm. and other people don't need to you know have the the sharp edges of that but right. they can definitely support you and that's another thing one one uh pillar of work that I hope to move into soon is helping, you know, executives and business leaders tell their own stories, not, they don't need to be novelists. I don't think everybody needs to be a novelist, but being able to write it down, like their life is a story and they are characters to help find those like, that's cool. Yeah. Because I think that when, you know, writing is such a safe space, fiction is such a safe space because there's a distance, but then you can also be like, Oh my God, like, this is a huge flaw that I've been struggling with. I, I don't know how to vocalize it. And just being able to own that story because, you know, these weaknesses are really what make us strong. Yeah. That's uh, right. 
That's right. It's just how we deal with them. And you can either see it as more of, you know, you can let it bring you down or you can use it to help drive you forward. Hmm. So yeah, it's part of the hero's journey is to go face, exactly. face that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I reference it quite a bit, but I love um the Star Wars series in the early one when Luke Skywalker's with Yoda and he's like, What's down there? And he's like, um, whatever you need or, you know, you go down there and find out it's exactly what you need. And then he yeah. sees Darth Vader in the cave and then he hits Darth Vader, breaks his mask off and he's in the mask. And so his greatest fear was he was going to become his yeah. father and this dark consciousness, but he had to go face that in order to realize he's not that. Yeah. Like a really good character faces their fears because it's interesting writing. And it's so hard. I used to talk about this with my therapist a lot because obviously I'm a writer. So she used those metaphors and parallels, wow. but often we are not good characters. Like we see something scary and we retreat. And I think that makes us really frustrated with ourselves because we're not letting ourselves, you know, tell good stories and also, you know, find out who we can be, reach our full potential. So I think we need to learn that it's okay to mess up. And I, I really think that the culture is shifting a bit, that there's a lot more room for failure and failure is seen as a good thing these days, but it means you're trying. Yeah. But I, I think that is a big stopping point for a lot of people. Whereas if Luke Skywalker was like, mm, kind of scary, right. it'd be a really boring movie. Yeah, that's true. It's true. I, yeah. I'm on a mission to see, help people see, to become the heroes of their own story, that they no longer idolize other people and put them up on pedestals that they are like, for instance, this, what I've gone through in my life and what I've, face and overcome and, and spoken about like I'm my own hero there's no one else in the world that I look to like oh I'd like to be like them I'm really proud of like I have faced it I've talked about it I've gone there I keep going there you know there's always more but most people are just not empowered I think yet and I do think it's changing like you're saying but they have not been empowered to face their fear and understand that in facing it that's the only way to grow and the only way out is through as opposed to yeah. we're taught the only way out is out. I heard this preacher say once, this old British preacher died in 1994. He said, everyone wants the upper room experience, which is referencing the book of Acts when like the Holy Spirit comes into the room and everyone's like on fire for God and doing miracle. Everyone wants that. Yeah. That sounds really cool. But yeah. no one wants to die to get there. Like everyone yeah. wants heaven. No one wants to die. And that's the human journey, the dichotomy of like, we can't live until we face our greatest fears. Like there is no life until we understand death. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times we don't know what our fears are. It's like mm -hmm. the fear underneath the fear. Um, be, a few months ago, I was really worried about my job. Just again, it was because of AI, it's because of automation. I blew it completely out of proportion. And I was like, this is a very odd response to something that hasn't passed yet. Like I haven't lost clients. I, you know, things are going fine. You know, I, I have a good support system. I have my family and my friends. Why am I freaking out so much? And I realized it was because like, I had my identity so much tied up in what I did that it was not the loss of work. It was the loss of who I thought I was. Mm -hmm. And so it had to be this big recalibration, obviously I have bigger fears than that. Like there are other, other fears yeah, that happened in my life, but yeah, yeah, it was just really interesting to, to dive into that and be like, wow, it's like these really fundamental things that we've told ourselves. And we tell ourselves so many stories just to survive. And eventually we have to confront those stories that are there to kind of like help us through one situation, but maybe aren't helpful in the long term. Mm.
I'll share um, one of my greatest fears. So growing up, being abused the way I was and then stalked and, and all the insanity, I was always afraid I was going to be hunted down and killed. And by who? My father and his world. And when I met my wife, she had a dream when we were dating that these black robed figures drug me away and they were drilling, they had a power drill and they were drilling into my head and she's screaming and I'm getting drug away. And they look to her and they say that this is in her dream, but this, and I had never talked about the fear of being hunted down and, yeah. and, and killed. Um, and they, this figure turns to her and says, he knows too much. He knows too much. And she, they drill in my head and they kill me in her dream. So she tells me about that. I'm like, dude, it's been like verified. Like I, that was always my greatest fear. And March 12th of 2020. So the next day, Trump shuts the economy down on Friday, the 13th and everything, but Seattle was already starting to heat up. And I don't know if I grew up because I grew up in this insane abusive home mixed with religion and end times teaching and all this stuff. I was afraid that we were going to get, and Jewish family, like I was afraid that we're going to get rounded up again for whatever reason, or I was going to be signaled out because I rolled a little different. I always say like, I didn't comply with any of like zero, like it was a non- there's no negotiation. I'm not doing it. And so what do you want to do? Fight? I don't want to fight you, but you, you know, not you, but ye. The society I was finding myself in wanted me to comply and submit. And so it was March 12th. It was a Thursday. I'll never forget. And I am having, I'm working out in the garage and I'm having like massive fear set in that they are going to come. I could feel like martial law or something was happening. It was just, this energy was creeping through and I was so afraid. It was so crazy. So I go for this hike and I hike up into the hills of Lake Mine and these um, trails and I hike and hike. And I'm like, what am I so afraid of? Like, what am I afraid of? Like, I want to like get very clear and I'll never forget. I'm on this ridge overlooking up in this mountain. And I realized my greatest fear is to be hunted down. Even though I could recall my being hunted down and killed I had to like internally process like, no, that is my greatest fear. And why do I feel it right now? Like what's really going on? And I had to be resolute. And if that happens, then it happens. Yeah. And right when I said, if it happens, it happens. I like finally surrendered to it. Like all the heaviness, all the weight just disappeared. And then the next day the world changes. And I was, I had no more fear. It was wild. It was like, I had yeah. to process I mean, not that I had no more fear, but I know more fear about that happening, even though it could have been a real scenario or not real scenario. It didn't matter so much. It was irrational, but it felt logical, you know? Yeah. Well, because so many of those fears are so ancient to ourselves, right? Yeah, like they right. come from that childhood place. Yes. And so it can be really hard to find the logic in them and be like, how am I reacting to this situation because of something that happened 
20 or 40 or 60 years ago. And when you figure that out, it's a lot easier to work with it because you can rationalize it. And like my experience during COVID, I had so many body fears about my body being out of control Mm -hmm. that I was just Mm -hmm. panicking all the time. Whenever I leave the house, I'd be like, oh my God, I've given myself COVID. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't have enough self-control to not go on a walk. And, and that's also really irrational because walking outside in a neighborhood with big streets was totally fine. Yeah. Right. Right. But I just had this fear that like, because of something I did, my body would get sick and I would die. Mm. And I mean, I think that does go back to childhood stuff too, yeah, you know, right. being sick as a kid and it being so scary or like just everything with bodies. So that's fascinating. Yeah. It, it felt like it, everyone's fears got brought up during the past couple of years. Yeah. And I, I don't think we're stopping it. I've, yeah. I've kind of had a hope that when COVID ended, we would have had more of a cultural kind of reckoning with that fear mindset. And I think in some ways we have, you know, a lot of people have come back together as communities. I think a lot more people are interested in in in-person things too. Like whenever you're with other people, I think the fears you realize are, Hey, this is not actually happening. Like when you're connecting with people face-to-face, you can kind of, you know, find a better equilibrium, Mm -hmm. but now we're going so digital again and automated that it's so much easier to be scared. Uh, And Yeah, I just, I, I really want us to find ways to promote community more. Mm. And I mean, I think it's, it's individual effort. I think it's local, local groups getting together, pushing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I, how can people connect with you and, and find you and support you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm on Instagram at Kim Bussing. And my website is kim-bussing.com. Um, I can also send you the links. Yeah, Lucas. No, I'll put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And then my email's on my website. So people can just reach out. I work with brands and CEOs and novelists. So whether they are trying to tell the story of their brand or the story of themselves or the story of their actual book, hmm. um, I help people. Beautiful. Yeah. Just, yeah. I'm so proud of you. You're, oh, thank you, you're an amazing light. It, 10 years from now, we'll be doing something very similar, somehow connecting on something really beautiful. And um, I'm really excited to get those books for my daughters when those are ready in 2025. That's going to be 2025. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to come quick. It's going to come quick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really think it's you gave me the confidence to pursue what I'm doing. You Mm. were the first person who in a business setting was like, you're good at this. Do you want to get paid for it? And I was like, I didn't know I could. Mm, so, cool. so thank you for uh, reaching out to my 19 year old self and giving him <laughs> a job. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's in, well, there, I don't believe in any accidents, and it's really beautiful to see. Yeah, me seeing you then and now here you are doing all the work that you're doing, and I'm proud yeah. of you. Really am. Yeah, thank you so much. Good job, and everyone, make sure you go follow Kim on Instagram, go to her website, and show her love. Um, yeah. She's a lovely, lovely soul. So thank you, sister. Yeah, thank you. It was so good to see you, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Kim, you're incredible. I love you. Thank you for all that you're doing and the journey that you're on is really inspiring to watch. So thank you for your life and your light that you're shining. And everyone, dear brother and sister, I send you so much love. I send you so much love. There's a lot of different perspectives and, and teachings and opinions and energies that are swirling, but I'm sending you love so that you can walk in truth and find the freedom that you've been searching for. I love you all. 
I am Lucas Mack, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for listening. For support in your journey, go to my website, lucasmack.com. Thank you.